0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The officer accused in the death of Elijah McLean takes the stand in his own defense.
1: I heard Mr. McLean say I intend to take my power back.
0: What went through your mind?
1: I was expecting to get shot, and I thought I'd never see my wife again.
0: he says he'd do differently if he could go back in time and where the case stands now. Then, dismantling racism in America. How to do it and is it even possible continues to be an ongoing debate. Today, we speak with the co-authors of a New York Times bestseller and documentary who say the solution lies squarely with white women.
2: White women serve a very critical role in upholding white supremacy, and we want them to stop doing that so we can all live.
0: What they say needs to happen for impactful change.
3: When your car needs too many expensive fixes, donate it to CPR. It's super simple. We'll even get it picked up at your convenience. The proceeds support CPR, the service you turn to for fact-based news and new and timeless music. Let your old car make great radio happen. Call 866-415-0005. That's 866-415-0005. Or get started at cpr.org support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Nathan Woodyard, the Aurora police officer who is on trial for his role in the death of Elijah McClain, took the stand Wednesday in his own defense. He's facing felony charges of reckless manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. It was the first time we've heard from any of the five first responders charged in McClain's death. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry was in the courthouse for the testimony. She joins me now with an update. Hi, Allison. Hi, Chandra. Allison, was it a surprise
4: that Woodyard took the stand? It was a surprise. You know, it's really rare. Almost never do people testify in their own trials. But I think in this case, his his defense attorneys thought his story was compelling enough that the jury should hear it. What did you learn from the officer's testimony? I've been covering this case for years now, and I think I heard things about the encounter with McLean that I just didn't know. You know, in the body camera Mm. footage, Woodard appears to kind of leave the scene after the carotid hold. We never really knew what what he did or what happened. And um, on Wednesday, he told the jury that he got really emotional after the carotid hold, and he cried to his sergeant about fears that McLean had a gun and that he was going to get shot and never see his wife again. Woodyard said the specter of McLean having an officer's gun shook him to the core and that moment really scared him. I want to
5: talk to you about what was going on in your mind following the struggle. i had asked you earlier about this being something you didn't take lightly. Tell us, after all of this, were you in a position to continue going about your duties as a matter of course. No. Can you explain to us why?
1: In my mind, I had a, I was anticipating on possibly being shot and dying and then had to use force. How
5: did you feel?
1: I felt overwhelmed. I felt scared.
4: You know, I should clarify, Elijah McClain absolutely was not armed. He never had a gun, and it's a little unclear whether he even grabbed her one. Um, but we also, u- we also learned um, in that testimony that Woodyard had never used a carotid hold before in the field, and that this was the first call of the night for him because he worked graveyards.
0: So the testimony was pretty emotional. What mm-hmm. else did we learn?
4: You know, I think the heart and soul of this whole testimony comes down to him basically tearfully telling the jury that he wishes he could do everything differently. From the moment he put his hands on McLean to take him to the moment he took him down to the grass with another officer, to the carotid hold, to trusting other officers to take care of McLean, and so on, he regrets the whole incident. But, and we've heard this before from prosecutors a lot, we also hear him, in his own words, acknowledge everything that he did wrong, that he basically violated a lot of training rules, procedures for dealing with people who receive carotid holds. He didn't empathize with McLean at the beginning. He didn't de-escalate the situation. He escalated it, actually. He certainly wasn't listening to McLean, and he didn't do anything very hands-on with McLean after he used this force on his neck that cut blood flow off to his brain and caused him to pass out. If you could go back,
5: would you do things differently? Yes. At the time, putting yourself right back in that... In those moments, was there ever a time that you believed Mr. McLean was in danger of dying? No. That's all I have for now. Thank you, Your
1: Honor. Cross-examination. Mr. Woodyard, the
6: second-to-last question Miss Downing asked you was, if you can go back in time, would you do things differently? You answered yes. Is that
1: correct? Yes.
6: One of the things, if you go back in time, that you would do differently, is you would have told Mr. Rudima and everybody else to put Mr. McLean back in the recovery position.
1: If I could go back in time, yes.
6: you could go back in time, one of the things you would do differently is you would tell Sergeant Leonard and the other officers that Mr. McLean couldn't breathe. Yes. You would want to go back in time to tell them that he'd thrown up into his mask while he was complaining that he couldn't breathe. Yes. Go back in time. You got out of that police car. You walked up to Mr. McLean. You wouldn't have come in hot. Stop, stop, stop. You would have approached it differently. Yes, I would if you go back in time, you wouldn't have grabbed him as soon as you got up next to him. Yes. You'd go back in time when Mr. Rosenblatt told him, we're going to lay you down on the grass. You would have said instead, hey, let's just talk to this guy. Yes. And if you could go back in time, you'd take back that carotid hold.
1: Yes,
4: I think the gamble his attorneys made was hearing how contrite he was. You know, he's tearful in his own voice. Um, You know, the jury heard that. But they also heard that, you know, he was under oath acknowledging everything he did wrong. So there's sort of a balance, you know, there there may be a good and a bad on that.
0: Any new details about Officer Woodyard's role in what happened that night?
4: There were. We've heard a lot about McLean repeatedly saying he couldn't breathe six or seven times in the encounter. But Woodyard said he was the officer who actually removed McLean's face mask on the scene. And he thought by removing that he'd fixed the medical emergency.
1: I looked at him, and he still had his mask on. um, So I took it off.
5: Tell us how you did that.
1: I grabbed it just from the top of his head. Removed it and just threw it into the grass.
5: Why did you do that?
1: Because he said he was having difficulty breathing. I thought the mask would at best be uncomfortable, but at worst be the cause of him not breathing.
5: Was taking off the mask in an effort, was that in response to him saying, I can't breathe? Or what was going through your mind?
1: Yes. I had just been in the same struggle, and I was out of breath. Um, so yes, I thought the mask was Im- impeding his ability to breathe, and that's the main reason I took it off.
4: Woodyard said after he did that, you know, McLean started talking in full sentences again, and he figured he was safe. So
0: the defense is arguing Woodyard had followed police protocol for dealing with someone who
4: had been put in a carotid hold. Or someone who said they can't breathe. Yeah, basically. you know, they're not definitely they're definitely not saying he did everything the way he should have. But I think the defense attorneys are noting that Woodyard was not recklessly negligent that he gave McLean a carotid hold, which was approved use of force at the time because he was fearful that he had tried to grab a gun. And then he tried to do some minimum stuff to make sure McLean was okay, including putting him in the recovery position and removing that mask. When you walked away, What were you thinking about the condition of Mr. McLean?
1: When I walked away, I thought that he was in the recovery position. There were officers with him. I thought he was safe.
5: Did you trust other officers would take care of him?
1: I did. Did they? No. I know that now.
4: I do want to note that whether, you know, and I think I said this earlier, but whether McLean really reached for that gun is still unclear. And it's kind of doubted at this point, actually. And even Woodyard's attorneys aren't necessarily saying that happened at the time. But in policing, it's often about what officers know at the time of the incident. And I think Woodyard is saying he didn't know anything except that he heard Rodima allege the gun grab, and that's why he acted.
0: What else did the prosecutor's arguments include?
4: Again, you know, the prosecutors are hewing pretty close to this reckless negligence piece, the multiple mistakes Woodyard made at the beginning, escalating a scene he wouldn't have needed to escalate, not reporting McLean's complaints that he couldn't breathe to the paramedics, not following his training and watching for asphyxia and checking someone's pulse, etc. They really underscored all the mistakes, the negligence in not doing what he's supposed to do, even if Woodyard's contrite about it now.
0: What struck you the most from what, what you did?
4: Well, I've been covering law enforcement for years now. It's really rare for them to so publicly say they wish they could sort of take back the whole scene if they could. You know, from the moment mm. he went hands-on to the carotid hold, he just kind of said he regretted it all. How did the jury react to the officer's testimony? Oh, the jury was so interesting to be in that room. You know, they were really wrapped. They were... A lot of them were scribbling down every single thing in a notebook that they could. It kind of almost looked like they were watching a tennis match because their heads were moving from Woodyard, who was weeping on the stand to the attorneys um, looking them. You know their heads were just moving back and forth and back and forth. They were very, very into it. What's next in this trial? So we expect closing arguments to happen in the next few working days. Um, then there'll be jury they will there'll be jury instructions on what they can include in their consideration on the verdict, and then we'll deliberate for you know as you know who knows some uh, x number of days or hours, and then we'll have a, a conclusion.
0: Allison, thank you. You're welcome. CPR Justice Reporter Allison Sherry reporting on Aurora Police Officer Nathan Woodyard's testimony yesterday. Woodyard is charged with reckless manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McLean. Follow the trial on our live blog at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
5: It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall and that's meaningful.
6: Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art.
5: It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up.
1: Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors.
0: What we're talking about today might make some of you out there listening feel, well, uncomfortable. It's about race and racism And at the center of it is a woman who has been nicknamed Karen. And we should note that it's meant more in the pejorative context, not an actual woman named Karen. She's that lady we've often seen splayed across social media platforms and in viral videos, calling the management or calling the police on people, mostly those of color, for what many consider seemingly benign situations. Well... My guests today have taken on Karen in the form of a jarring, in your face, New York Times bestselling book and a documentary. And they say it's all in the name of love and rooted in a desire for much needed change. You be the judge.
7: I have two young children and it's important for me that they
2: grow up colorblind, right?
5: I'm an artist and a barista. I've always thought of myself as being like kind of woke. And I mean, you know, my best friend is Mexican. My partner is biracial. We have these conversations all the time. But then through following your posts and interacting on your posts, I realized I'm not doing that great. (laughs) And I feel like there's a racist white man living in my brain and it's my dad's voice.
8: I'm a descendant of slave traders who believes very strongly in telling ugly history. It's an honor to be here, and I'm willing and wanting to get uncomfortable because I think that's what we need to do.
4: I'm here tonight because I'm confused. I watched my son feel victimized. He felt that because he was a white male, that he was a victim of reverse racism. We're all
7: human. We all have a light, a heart shining within us that needs to be seen. We all need to be a little bit better and just recognize the love in each and every one of us.
2: Every single dinner, without fail, we've got like the woke wars. And so it really is this like being wedded to how not racist you are, but it's a start. It's a start and you've got to start somewhere.
0: Joining me now is Regina Jackson, a Black woman, and Syra Rao, an Indian-American woman. They are co-authors, co-stars, and it all started with them co-founding an event called Race to Dinner. Thank you both for joining us on Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, there's your New York Times bestselling book, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. And I recently watched your documentary, Deconstructing Karen.
2: Deconstructing Karen is dismantling your own white supremacy. And deconstructing that for me was actually like removing the toxin from my body where I could start acknowledging all of the poison that I'd been swallowing and believing It's deprogramming yourself. The only way I can say this is I feel like I had to break myself and shatter into so many pieces and I'm slowly putting myself together. It has made me have to unlearn everything. It is deconstructing all that has been caused to me and all the harm that I have caused.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. But first, we should start by explaining that the film actually centers around an event you two created, again, called Race to Dinner. Tell us about it.
9: Well, we started in 2019. Syra ran against a long-term Democrat for Congress, and her whole campaign was around anti-racism, This went on for a while and Syra would, because she was courting votes, entertain white women whenever she spoke. They all wanted to talk to her, you know, one-on-one and what they wanted to say, is not me, I'm not racist. Well, I had an ex-white friend in the neighborhood who basically said, I'm done with Syra, she hates white people, but if you can get her to go to lunch with me and you would do that, that'd be great. I went to Cyrus. She said, I'm not doing this anymore. And these white women aren't going to vote for me anyway. She said, but if your friend wants to host a dinner, invite her white lady friends and you do it with me, we can do that.
2: So yeah, that's what we did. And it was a full white woman Broadway musical replete with crying, arms folded, some laps around the table. And afterwards, I posted about it on Facebook, you know, shame on them the first 1,200 times, shame on me every time thereafter for even doing this. And the Facebook post went viral, and it was all the white ladies raising their hand, pick me, pick me, I want to do a dinner, I want to do a dinner. And Regina and I were like, you know what, if we're educating white women anyway for free, we might as well start a business and charge folks uh, you would be led to believe that we're like living on yachts right now and flying private planes based on how the media has, has portrayed us in terms of charging them. But we uh, started something called Race to Dinner.
0: Hmm. Now, speaking of media, your work has been featured just about everywhere. Newsweek, Time, Fox News, The Today Show, in The Guardian, even on Dr. Phil. So you decided to make the dinner's an event where you invite a group of white women to sit down over a very upscale dinner and talk about
9: race and privilege. Actually, the white women are self-selecting. So the way we have it set up, a white woman host or a couple of them hostesses contact us and say, I want to do a dinner. So they self-select and they come to us and we agree to do it. And the only rule we have around our dinner table is no cry, no white tears. Mm.
2: That's an important distinction because there's this notion that somehow we're like drugging these women and flogging them and, and dragging them into this room to have these conversations. I mean, this is a they find us, they book us. And to be honest with you, we have more people now who want to do them that we have capacity to do. And they're not always upscale. So the, the women, you know, book it, and then they can do whatever they want. Sometimes it's pizza. Sometimes it's potluck. Mm. You know, sometimes it is fancy. But it's whatever they want to do, and we just show up.
0: So the concept is basically breaking bread and talking about this topic. And you all were doing these dinners all over the country. And then you were approached by a filmmaker about filming one of the dinners for a documentary. And the end result is this film, Deconstructing Karen. And I must say the dinner table discussion was pretty intense. And here's how the Apple TV description puts it. In this documentary feature film, nice white women attend the wildest dinner party of their lives. The main course is a radically honest conversation on racism. And there is some emphasis on the word
2: nice. Syra, can you explain that? Sure. I mean, White women desperate need to be nice is killing all of us. And what does that mean? What does nice mean? It means being um, fake, it means being phony, it means um, not speaking out of turn, not interrupting things. And ultimately, it means upholding oppression when it happens. What does that look like? It looks like your racist friend calling something ghetto. Or making a terrorist joke about a Muslim person or a Muslim presenting person. Making a joke about lazy Mexican folks. You know, we hear all the time about how racist Uncle Bob is at Thanksgiving. And what do they do in the face of this? They're quiet. They are quiet. And there's an old saying from Nazi Germany that if there's one Nazi at the table and 10 people sitting quietly with that Nazi, there are 11 Nazis sitting at the table. So that is what white nice looks like. It's not speaking up in the face of oppression.
0: Now, what do you say to people who feel that is a sweeping generalization and that you are essentially picking on white women?
2: We non-white folks are always on the receiving end of sweeping generalization. Asian Americans, do you know how many countries are in Asia? Black Americans, African Americans. How about other sweeping generalizations? Muslim bands. Chinese Exclusion Act, chattel slavery, genocide of indigenous people, whiteness relies on dehumanizing us and creating monoliths among us. And I think it's amazing. Nothing makes white people matter when we talk about white people as a monolith. And by the way, in this system, all white people are racist. And the folks who get the maddest about that are the ones who are the most wedded to their racism. We've got plenty of white folks who are ready and willing to roll up their sleeves and deconstruct this. Why? Because they have some analysis and they understand it is killing them too. They understand that racism and white supremacy is bad for them too. And instead of crying about being called white people, they're like, let us deconstruct this and let us all get well together.
0: So in the beginning of your film, we hear a mix of statements from both of you, such as people are so unwilling to have the conversation and that you can't change what you don't acknowledge. And Regina, you say, quote, white women, you have to get on board for humanity to have any hope. Why do you say that? And again, why such laser focus on white women? What do you want white women to do?
2: Look at back in the day, you know, there's this, all this stuff that white men were the only people who enslaved people. No, white women were there too doing it. What about lynchings of black folks? I mean, this is recent history. This is not a billion years ago. And I was just recently down in Alabama at the lynching memorial and literally stone after stone after stone said this black man was lynched because he annoyed a white woman. This black family, children, was lynched because they walked too close behind a white woman. White woman, white woman, white woman. Look at Emmett Till. Look at Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in Central Park. I mean, it's it's still today white women serve a very critical role in upholding white supremacy. And we want them to stop doing that so we can all live. That's it. It's like if they can stop doing that, the whole jig is up. White supremacy culture, the system of white supremacy cannot continue if white women don't uphold it.
9: The bottom line is liberation for everyone. We want all of us to be free. We want LGBTQ people to be free. You know, what is it to me if someone is living their life and not hurting me? Why would I care about that? So we want liberation for everyone.
0: The documentary
9: was filmed in
0: 2019 before this thing called the COVID-19 pandemic literally rocked all of our worlds. And of course, that was in 2020 when the murder of George Floyd occurred in Minneapolis and was months of racial unrest. A lot of people say we experienced a racial reckoning in America that year. Have
2: things changed in your view, Syrah? I'll tell you what's changed. is We've, we've experienced a massive white lash. All the white people got terrified of those amazing protests. And um, what's happened since then? Book bans. The end of Roe versus Wade the criminalization of trans kids, more police brutality.
9: I've been around since 1950, so I have seen a lot. And I don't think that uh, we have had a uh, racial reckoning. I think what we're seeing is Black people, brown people, we have given ourselves permission to tell the truth.
2: Regina and I have been very intentional of black woman with Asian woman, black woman with model minority. Why? Because one of the principal methodologies of upholding white supremacy is dividing and conquering black and brown folks. So we've been very intentional about being, we are united, we are united against white supremacy. And that is absolutely, we just had an amazing event in New York City on Friday. And each one of our events is super diverse. And it really is incredible what we are seeing is Black and brown people, Black and brown women, really starting to, like, everyone's speaking up now, and we're starting to see really, truly racial, interracial solidarity. Like, Latino women, Asian women, Black women, Indigenous women, we are holding hands. We are an arm-in-arm together against white supremacy. Syra, what I also
0: found interesting in the film is that you are Indian American, and at the dinner you ask everyone at the table to raise their hand if they're racist. And some of the white women reluctantly raised their hands, but your hand shot up immediately. And at one point, you described yourself as once upon a time being a white woman feminist trapped in a brown body. Tell us more about that.
2: Sure. You know, it's funny. We hear a lot. It's complicated. It's complicated. No, the system is very simple. The way you feel about having to end your complicity in the system might be complicated, but the system is very simple. And what is it? White people at the top, Black people at the bottom, and non-Black people of color like Latin folks and Asian folks in the middle brought here to keep white people up at the expense of ourselves and at the expense of black people so my parents came over after the 1965 immigration act which was made possible by the 1964 civil rights act which was made possible by black people literally dying for my right to be here and white supremacy culture is is beamed all around the world because of our media so when my parents came here, they knew they, I, was, I was forced to assimilate. I was absolutely not forced to assimilate to black culture. I was forced to assimilate to white culture, which meant being anti-black, being anti-black and hating myself as well. And so this has been not only this journey has forced me to reckon with my own anti-blackness that has been baked into my own DNA, in all of our DNA. So we all need to have this reckoning. And this dismantling within ourselves. Am I cured? Of course not. This is going to be a lifelong journey of mine. And I'm committed to it because I am starting to feel liberated. I am. Like Regina says often, you're going to lose friends, you're going to lose family, you're going to lose jobs. But on the other side of it is liberation. And I can say this, I can sleep at night.
0: So is it that you want these white women who attend your events and who also were featured in the documentary to take a closer look at their thoughts, their actions, and
9: make significant change? You have to dismantle your own white supremacy. And, you know, as a person who's been on this earth for a while, I know that my work as a human being is working on myself, making Regina the best Regina I can be, supporting other human beings, taking care of each other. That's the work of all of us. So yes, White women need to do that work too. And when you do the work and you're becoming the human being you're meant to be, you understand that we are all equal. We are all connected and we all have to support one another.
0: Well, I gotta ask you specifics. What does that work look like? I mean, someone's listening and I don't know you know, what they're thinking, You know, if they're considering this or not, but what are some actual steps that someone could take based on what you are desiring with this project?
9: Number one for me is stop pretending that you don't see racism. Stop letting other white people off the hook. You know, I shouldn't be the one to have to confront a white woman in the grocery store when there's 15 other white people there and they're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing, okay? But that's just me. Stop Uncle Harry from telling the racist, sexist, homophobic jokes at the dinner table. And I have to tell you a story. My 84 year aunt came over for Thanksgiving and she makes a comment. I hate it when those gay people show affection in public. So I said to her, how does that harm you? Well, it doesn't. She had nothing she could say. So what I said to her is okay. You do not get to be homophobic in this house.
2: That's the first step. Call out
9: stuff when you see it.
2: Yeah, and, and, and there's a reason we have a subtitle to our book. It's White Women. And here's the, the, the critical piece, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. So that's the gaslighting you pretending that you don't know and it is a literal guidebook and and further to what Regina said I mean we we were told by our white publishers that like 50 people they thought maybe 50 people at most would read it and now we're like upwards of 100,000 book sales and what is funny about it is I can't tell you how many messages we've gotten over the past year. We're like, read the book. It is really 101. And our white editor, when we were sending in chapters, we were like, du- she was like, dumb it down, dumb it down, dumb it down. And <laughs> what we did, it's really distilled to its essence, which I think it's why it's so popular. But nevertheless, some women will email and be like, so what do I do next? And here's part of the damsel in distress culture of being a white woman is you're so used to being saved and having people tell you what to do. And this work requires you to actually kind of find your own way. Like, we've literally written the guidebook. Read the book. Every white woman who is curious, read the book. And and the truth is, is you're going to have to kind of figure it out for yourself. That is what inner work is, is, is figuring some stuff out for yourself. Where do we
0: go from here? You read the book. You watch the documentary. What's next?
9: You start doing the work. You start, and you know, once you start using your voice, it becomes easier. I'm just one of those people. If I see something out and about and you know it doesn't look right to me, I say something. Once you start speaking up, it becomes easier to speak up. And it doesn't, you don't have to offend people. Um, you just say, hey, you know, I'm not okay. With this, I saw a woman in Whole Foods sticking her head in the bin and eating. I was like, you know, that is really bad. And she said, "Well, I just touched, just ate the one I just." I said, "What if everybody did that? That's how simple it is."
2: Yeah, and and you know, there's very basic things like chapter one of our book is white woman perfectionism, and I think we say something to the effect of if white womanhood is a house, white woman perfectionism is its foundation. And so there's really basic things about white women like being so mean to themselves and being mean to each other. I mean, that's really what it is. White women need to start loving themselves and loving each other. And then we can talk about the rest of it. This book is about that. like, figure out how things that you just think are like, oh my, I have to have my house the exact right way. And my kids have to be the exact right way. And I've got to weigh negative zero pounds and (laughs) how that is all part of white supremacy culture.
0: The style in the film is clearly very, Brash in your face, and are you concerned at all about alienating potential allies in this
2: work? That there's a bunch of different ways to say absolutely not, that would be my answer.
9: (laughs) And what we're finding is the exact opposite. You know, we've been around the world and we're entertaining other offers to come around to different countries to do this work. So, obviously, people are seeing a need. And people are wanting to work with us to make changes. Is there hope? Do you have hope that this can change? I do. You know, I'm a very optimistic person. Um, Every day when I talk to people who are doing the work, it enlightens me.
2: We wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if we didn't have hope.
9: Well, this weekend...
0: Regina, you will be at a fundraiser for a Denver-based advocacy organization that supports Black women called Sister to Sister. Can you tell us about what's happening this weekend?
9: They are doing their fundraising event for their annual fundraising, and they have invited me to um, be a speaker and share an interview. So I will be interviewed basically talking about the work that Sire and I do, probably the same type of conversation we're having with you, Chandra.
2: And and I can tell you, um, so I live in Richmond, Virginia now. Um, I will be over here in Virginia doing a similar event um, in downtown Richmond. So we have we are all over the place. We're doing live events. We're doing Zoom events. You know, we're getting the word out and people are responding. So, yeah, we I have hope. We have hope.
0: As we wrap up, any final words you want to share with our listeners about the work that you're doing?
2: You know,
9: I always say some people have bought the book. They've gotten other books as gifts. I always say, send one to a white person that you know doesn't want it.
2: I would say the sooner you wake up and realize that white supremacy and racism is killing you too, the sooner you'll be able to dismantle it and we can all live and humanity can remain on this earth.
0: Regina, Syra, thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you, Chandra. Thanks, Chandra. That was Regina Jackson and Syra Rao co-founders of an event called Race to Dinner, which brings white women together from across the country to discuss what role they can play in helping to dismantle racism. Their work is featured in the New York Times bestselling book, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better, and the documentary Deconstructing Karen, which is available now on several streaming platforms, including YouTube, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and Tubi. Jackson will lead a fireside chat that will include a screening of the film followed by a discussion at a fundraiser for the Denver organization Sister to Sister this Sunday, November 5th. We'll link to the details of the event later today when we post this segment to the Colorado Matters page on our website, which is CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.
8: When it comes to elections, an off year doesn't mean Colorado voters get to take the year off. Ballots for the fall election are out, and CPR.org is your place for answers to your questions about voting, election security, and this year's two statewide questions. That's all at CPR.org. If you live in Denver, denverite.com has you covered for local elections, and there's a voter guide for Southern Colorado at krcc.org. Happy voting!
0: Ski season has officially started in Colorado. The first resort opened Sunday, and on the very first lift of the morning were two friends who've made getting that first chair of the season their mission for more than 30 years. CPR's Tina Sieg brings us the story.
8: It's opening day at Arapahoe Basin, and despite the pelting snow, there is a long line of skiers and boarders eager to ride their first chairlift of winter. Five, four, three, two, one. And on that very first chair, two snowboarders who've been here with sleeping bags and hand warmers to guard their spot around the clock for two days.
3: My name is Nate Dog, D-O-G-G-G-G. My name is Trailer Tom.
8: Real names, Nate Nadler and Tom Miller, who live nearby. Nadler owns a hot tub servicing business and Miller's a financial consultant, but they're better known as the kings of first chair.
1: A few days in line is always well worth the wait.
8: On the cold night before opening day, Nadler shows off his favorite sleeping spot, directly underneath the Black Mountain Express chairlift.
3: I'll scoot this snow out and just sleep right on the ground.
8: They've been getting first chair since he was 14 and Miller was 15, inspired by an old man who used to always get first chair at Loveland Ski Area. And they've perfected their approach. Miller says that includes limiting how much they eat and drink.
1: People that have been out here with us for hours and hours, they missed that spot in line because they took that last bathroom trip. So we cannot afford to let that happen.
8: So definitely no coffee. In their decades of being first to hit Colorado's slopes, there have been some close calls, like that year Nadler was waiting at one ski area for a whole day and then saw a stomach-dropping social media blast from another resort.
3: Oh my gosh, they're opening in one hour. I need to get there. I need that first chair. So I jump in my vehicle, start heading up the highway, and I'm like, holy crap, holy, I left my snowboard at the other chairlift.
8: He screeched his old Jeep around and somehow made it back before the lift started spinning.
3: And sure enough, there was one person waiting in line already. But it's a four-person chair. Still got that first chair. But gosh darn it, we were scared for it. We were scared.
8: And the anxiety actually starts at the beginning of every winter. Wilson says for weeks they're carefully checking the forecast, driving by ski areas to look at snow levels, listening to gossip, gathering any clues they can about which resort's opening first, so they can be there first.
1: It's that burning desire. If you have something in your life that you are so inspired to do that'll bring a tear to your eye, that's what this is for us.
8: Sunday was trailer Tom and Nate Dog's 31st first chair. Sitting next to friends they call their first chair family, they pause for pictures before bursting through a giant banner, marking the start of a brand new season. Behind them, so many people who may take their crown someday, but not this year.
4: We're number, We're number two! We're number two! We're number two!
8: We're number two! At Arapahoe Basin, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: Colorado's ski history is as deep as its powder and as full of surprises as a black diamond bump run. Karen and Peter Bodie have spent nearly a decade uncovering interesting historical nuggets in this state's long love affair with skiing. They've written two books on the lost ski areas of Colorado and continue to add new skiing yarns on their lost ski areas of Colorado blog. They spoke with Nathan
3: Heffel last year. In your books, you really highlight that every little town had a hill and every little town had maybe a tow rope at best. Right. And, And how much of this was a community event, especially in the mountains of Colorado, where there was so much snow and people, you know, really felt that community vibe. Go to to the ski hill
10: yeah i mean and a lot of it was you know winters are long and keep those kids out of trouble <laughs> and you know, a lot of it was just for the kids and uh yeah almost every town had something uh for the kids and then that changed in the late 50s they started to regulate the the lifts and things some of these things were really dangerous and uh and so it evolved that a lot of the skiers went out of business the insurance costs and then also the bigger skiers were being developed in the 50s 60s and 70s and if you're a teenager and you grew up on the little hill you want to go to the big hill once you're a teenager so um so that was just kind of the evolution of why so many of those little skiers and little towns but there's still a few left Uray has one and gunnison has one silverton has one like that durango has one
7: and the other thing is the ranchers jumped into the effort and, uh, we're helping a variety of ways. First of all, they would give a hill so that kids could come to their ranch for skiing. They would use their tractors to create rope toes toes and, and, uh, you know, they'd bake and have hot dogs and things, concessions.
10: (laughs) Where were some of those? Uh, well, there was one North of steamboat on a ranch Fetcher ranch. The the Fetcher Ranch. And that family went on to help build a steamboat ski area. There was one in Eagle. The little rope toes and things were run. You take an old Buick, you take the tires off of it, put some regular just rims without a tire, you know, and that and you run that engine and that turned the rope toe. And then you you nail some more pulleys onto posts on up the hill, and you've got a rope toe. And so it was very inventive. And there was one family in Durango, I think they used it at three or four different places, and they just move it around. And we were never sure whether to call those separate ski areas or the same one, because one day, one one year, it'd be above the highway going up Coldbank Pass, north of Durango. And the next year, they'd have a slope below the highway, you know, and I don't know if that's two <laughs> ski areas or one. Or... You
3: have written about so many lost ski areas in Colorado. Uh, lost meaning they're no longer operating. And in many cases, it's tough to even find any signs they ever existed. What are some of the more unusual lost ski areas you've uncovered across the state beyond what we've spoken about today?
10: Again, it was a ranch family by partial Colorado, which is between Kremling and uh, Hot Sulphur Springs or- granby and they built a little slope on their ranch and it grew back in but it's kind of like looking at a photographic negative because of the beetle kill in the area the slope had lodgepole pine on it and then uh aspen grew in where the ski slope was and also some a lot of small lodgepole pine and if you go there now It used to be a slope cut out of a forest, and now the forest is gone because the beetle killed all the trees. And so next to the ski run is empty, but the little lodgepole pine that grew in weren't subject to the disease. And so that's the ski run is where the trees are now. Just the opposite of what you would (laughs) expect.
3: Karen, I mean, are some of these hunting trips, are they they adventures for you? Finding these places, hunting these forests to find places that don't exist anymore.
7: It was really an adventure. We love Colorado. Discovering hills and areas where you never thought they would be. And one of them that we found near Greeley, Colorado, of all places was called Shark Tooth. And they named it that because they found shark's teeth as they built it. Now this Whoa. was a an area that opened in 1971 with the logo of a shark wearing a ski hat and sunglasses. And it happened because the mayor, Mayor Perchlik, decided he would make a hill for the local kids. A lot of them couldn't go to the mountains. So he, uh, he created this hill.
10: And it had a vertical of, they claimed 120 feet. I think it was closer to 100. But um, yeah, we've really met people that skied there.
3: What's it like when you come upon a defunct resort? I mean, what's the feeling you get? I mean, you've been doing this for so long. Would you still call this a hobby or, or has it become something more? What's that feeling when you say, oh, there it is. I found it. It's right over there.
7: Well, it's a thrill. We just, you know, we go hiking around. We try not to trespass. But uh, sometimes we wander a little bit <laughs> and uh, we're looking for any sign we can find. I'm thinking of Indian Mountain um, in South Park. And we were walking the, the hill and uh, couldn't find anything. And I turned around and there was a bench made out of snowboards with an Indian Mountain logo on it. And I said, oh, there really was a ski area here.
3: Are there still hills that are left to be discovered, or have you two pretty much
10: found them all? Well, I'm, I'm sure there's still some to be discovered. We found between about about 135 to 140. Again, it's what how do, what do you define as a ski area? And you know that one family that moved the rope to around a different place. You know, is that three ski areas or right, one? Right, right, right. There's still some to be discovered. There's a, a handful of the ones that are in our book where we never found the location the exact location but um the the thing that i think with our books is we've preserved this history because some of the people that we talked to i i talked to a man in the san luis valley who was 104 had Hmm. still skied that year but i i suspect he's probably passed away by now
3: well i really appreciate you two taking the time to speak with me it's such a fascinating history of these small little ski hills and things like that in colorado thanks for joining us
7: thank you (laughs)
0: Karen and Peter Bodie of Littleton have written two books on lost ski areas in Colorado and they've continued delving into the state's ski history because they're hooked on the topic. They spoke with Nathan Heffel last year. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team.
3: Tyler Bender,
10: Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
8: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
10: Matt Hers, Tom Hess,
1: Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano,
0: Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.